Good morning. Thank you for coming. Thank you for praying. And and uh, as I as I see you here and uh, I sense a a desire for spiritual food, that's wonderful. Um, you're amazing. We sang those songs this morning. At the beginning, we had three songs, and one of them was uh, number one. Okay. And when that number was given, I didn't see anybody jump up and say, Hey, hey, hey n- not number one. We ought to sing number five. Or I didn't hear anyone say, when I sing, i got to sing the song I choose. And so I didn't hear anybody starting up another song over here and over here at the same time that Brother Lauren was starting his song. You were all so, um, what's the word? You were all so submissive. It was impressive. He said number one, and we all got on the same page. Wasn't it okay to sing number two? Aren't there more songs in the book than number one? I mean, we could have spent all morning discussing which song to sing. We, yeah, wow. And and do you know what the result was? Do you know what the result was of of your submissive attitude? It was harmony. It was really neat to sit in here and just feel everyone's lifting their voices and 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 the song was flowing and. And sometimes, you know, when a song hits those really nice chords, it makes little boost bumps go up and down your arms. But if there would have been people trying to sing other songs at the same time, I don't think there would have been any goosebumps. It would have made us want to head for the door. So... Is submission really nice? Yeah, it is. And just the fact that you're all here means that you gave up whatever else you could have done and you came here instead. And so you're here. You could have done something else, but instead you're here. And right now... I don't hear anyone arguing. I don't hear anybody playing ball or anything. You're all sitting there listening really carefully, I can tell. And that's because you've chosen to be quiet and listen. You're so submissive this morning. Is that beautiful? Yes, it is. It's really neat. 
Yeah, it's pretty amazing. To, if God grants you the grace to have a submissive heart this morning, just be thankful. It's a treasure. I've entitled the message this morning, The Yoke. Uh, Children, do you know what a yoke is? Somebody talks about a yoke. Do do you know what a yoke is? Can can you, would one of you want to explain to me what a yoke is? I mean, I don't mean an egg yoke. I mean the other kind. Okay. Do do you know what yokes were used for? Maybe in some places they still use them, but we don't see them much in our land. Do you have a picture in your mind? You want to you want to try? Hmm? You want to tell us what a yoke is? Okay. It's like in my mind, I I see a piece of wood, kind of maybe like this, and then. There's maybe like a bent piece of steel here and one here. And then when they use oxen to pull, they used to use oxen to do their field work. And you'd, you'd take the one ox's head and put him in through that loop, and the other one puts his head through that loop, and then you hitch up the plow or something to that. And then those two oxen, when they're plowing, they have to lean forward and put their shoulders up against that. And they push into the load and they pull hard. And they're both pulling. And then because the plow is is hooked up to that yoke. And and so they they lean forward and they pull. And the plow goes in and the dirt starts turning over and the, and the farmer walks along behind, but the but the oxen are laying in, they're leaning into that yoke. What that yoke does is make so that two oxen can pull together. Otherwise, one ox would have to pull the plow, and it's probably too much. But when two work together, they can pull that plow and pull it down through the field. What do you think happens if one of the oxen decides not to pull? Right away, it starts to not work. One, if one starts to move back and the other one pulls ahead and, and, or the one wants to go this way and when you plow, you gotta stay in line, right? And it just doesn't work. They, the farmer's back there, he's handling the plow, he's having a hard time. This plow, this, this ox pulls this way and, oh. And the poor farmer's feeling frustrated. But as soon as he can get those two oxen to both lean into the yoke and pull with all their might, he just goes up and down the field, turns over the furrows, and he's farming. He's farming. 
Wow. The yoke. Um, I'd like to turn over to Matthew chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, you can follow me there. We have the familiar words here of Jesus for our text this morning. They're not new, but they're powerful. We'd like to read them. Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus gives an invitation and he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, loaded heavy, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. There's the yoke. Take my yoke upon you. And learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find, what? Rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And and if you really think this through, what Jesus is saying, it could take us all morning to think that through. And, and, and as he invites us to come, you know, he says, I will give you, you know, I thought, you know, he didn't say heaven. He didn't say salvation. He didn't say prosperity. He didn't say money. He didn't say ease and wealth. He didn't say the American dream. He didn't say a lot of things. Why did he say rest? He says, if you come to me and you're feeling heavy and loaded down, I will give you rest. I started pondering over that. Isn't that what every person longs for? is rest. When a person is burdened down with sin and a person doesn't know what to do, he doesn't know where to go, he's discouraged, he doesn't know what to think, he doesn't know how to solve his problems, he doesn't know what to do, and he thinks of Jesus, and Jesus offers to him to come, and he will give him rest. You love that, don't you? Rest. Rest. I think every heart longs to rest. Even the person who's out in sin, the person who runs away from God, the person who takes his own way at the end of the day, I believe that every person searches for rest of heart. To just be able to rest and be okay. Find rest. The word rest, when we think about that, we think about words like peace, um, stability, reassurance. Um, Yeah, words like that come to mind. 
But Jesus is saying that he has a yoke. Jesus wears a yoke? Jesus is in a yoke? Yes. And he's inviting you to get into the other side with him and to move forward with him. You see, when when there's two oxen in a yoke, they need to go together. Where one goes, the other goes. Where When one pulls, the other one pulls. When one stops, the other one stops. When one backs up, the other one needs to back up, right? They are in sync with each other, if you want to say it that way. They are yoked together, for better or for worse. And when they're resting, they rest together. They do, they do everything together. They are yoked. And Jesus is in the yoke too. And he invites you to join him in the yoke. He invites you and me, he invites us to walk with him, to work with him, to pull with him, uh, to rest with him. That's the invitation. And amazingly enough, so now what goes through your mind when you think of a yoke? You say, do I? Do I need to get into a yoke? No, I want to do my own thing. I'm not getting into a yoke with anybody. I'll do things my way. I'll do things the way I want to. I'm not getting into a yoke. Does the yoke sound distasteful to you? Do you have the feeling of, oh no, here we go. Gotta take the yoke. Is that how it feels? Along with the yoke, there is power. You know, when there's two together in the yoke, especially when you've got Jesus on the other side, if we can anywhere close keep up, we've got power. We'll drag this world around. Uh, there's strength there. There's, there's, yeah, there's power there. And when you're yoked to someone, you get to experience the power that of the person on the other side. I'm going to turn over to Philippians now just for a little bit and read a verse that, that uh, Paul wrote to the Philippians. And that, and that st- really stood out to me. <coughs> Philippians chapter 4. I'll read verse 2 and 3. He says, I beseech Yodias and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord, and I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel. And he continues on. Yoke fellow. Who is that? Yoke fellow. He's talking about the person that's also in the yoke, too, right? Yoke fellow. 
And he says he was a true yoke fellow. I pondered on that. So is Paul indicating that we as believers are in a yoke together? Like, I'm yoked with you? I believe so. God wants us to pull together too. He wants us to be like two faithful oxen that are willing to take the burden heat of the day, pull together, turn over the sod, accomplish the project, and really be two yoke fellows. That's what God wants. Both of us leaning into the load. No, not one that way and one that way. Together. He wants us to pull together and accomplish his work. A true yoke fellow. Am I a true yoke fellow? That's the question that comes to me. Would you like to be a true yoke fellow? Are you? Are you a person that leans into the yoke doesn't care if the sun's hot. Your, your yoke fellow is with you and you have work to do for God and you're both leaning into that yoke and you're going to move forward. I think it was, I think it was a couple of weeks ago we were at the old people's home and we were singing and we forgot our books and so we were singing by heart. And we were singing more familiar songs, and we sang the the song. Well, I'll tell you the words, and you tell me which song it was. The second verse of our song said, Perfect submission, perfect delight. And the third verse of the song said, Perfect submission, All is at rest. You like that, don't you? You like for everything in your life to be all at rest? Now, which song was it? Blessed Assurance. Yeah, Blessed Assurance. Jesus is mine. What a foretaste of glory divine. And then he says, perfect submission, perfect delight. Why did he write that? Wasn't, isn't submission something that's kind of feel like somebody's wilting you down? Squeezing you down, not letting you live, can't be yourself. Is that, is that what you, is that how you view submission? He says it's perfect delight. And then he goes, perfect submission. All is at rest. Wow. No storms, no, no fight, no, no steep mountains. All is at rest. That's so neat. What picture does that paint in your mind? It paints a picture of serenity, a picture of strength, a picture of power. Did you know that if the, that 
the person that you're submissive to, that when you're submissive to them, you kind of have all of that person's power upon you? Or with you? It's just something to ponder. But Jesus, Jesus says here that if we're laboring and are heavy laden, have you got any burdens today? Is there anything in your life that feels heavy? Do you have anything that's weighing you down? Do you have any situations that you just aren't sure how in the world are ever going to make it through this? Situations where you think this is way too much. We're not going to make this one. Or it looks like we're headed into a bottleneck and things are going to mess up. There's a lot of things in life that feel real heavy to us. I'm just going to take a moment and share something personal with you. Um, God's been doing things in my life, and I'm thankful for that. Because of some of the, the situations and conditions, that things that are happening in my life, God has been using those to work in my heart. And... You know, maybe that's the reason God sometimes allows things in our lives is because he just sees that there's an awful lot of work that needs to be done in the heart. And I think that was the case, is the case for me. But God's been willing to work in me and, and I just wanted to share something with you and, and God's been, God's been teaching me what it means to really forgive. Because, you know, you really can't forgive without being submissive or surrendering, can you? You, you really can't come to true forgiveness until you come to real surrender in heart. And, and, um, and so God has been trying to teach me what real forgiveness is. And this summer, uh, I just wanted to share with you this one incident. That this summer, um, we had a, a family reunion coming up out in Pennsylvania. And and as time got closer, I didn't know what to think and how to feel because it felt like a burden on my heart because I we wanted to go, and yet uh, my, my, my brother and sister-in-law were in charge of the reunion, and, and there were some things that had happened in these past years that that were really, really difficult for me in regard to them, to things that they had done or said. And I said, am I going to this reunion? And when I get there, what am I going to do? Am I going to sneak around in the shadows? And am I going to have to try to avoid people? I said, no, I don't want to do that. And... So I begged God to give me grace to forgive them. You know, I probably kind of thought like I had forgiven them. 
But as I got closer to the time of the reunion, I could tell by the feelings that were rolling around in my heart that there was still more there than should be there. And it was distressing to me. And I said, I do not want to go to our family reunion and have this load on my heart. And I said, God, I'm just, I'm just going to forgive. I'm going to completely forgive. When I get to that reunion, I want to come into there and walk up to my brother-in-law and throw my arms around him and love him. And, and so, it, it, it felt like a deep struggle, but I just decided to surrender to God and let him work. And when I did, my heart was filled with joy, and I wanted to go to the reunion. And, and when I got there, I threw my arms around my brother-in-law and around his wife, and I enjoyed the time there. My heart felt so light. Like, you know, like you could go barefoot and run around the house so fast with your feet barely touching the grass with the air streaming through your hair. That's the way you feel when you forgive. That's the way you feel when you totally release and let go. And it was such a blessing to me. And and so, anyway, maybe you don't relate to those kind of things. But it was a real blessing in my heart. It just filled my heart with joy. And, and the Lord gave me rest, just like Jesus said he would. He gives rest into a heart when we totally open our heart and lay it down. And so it was just a real blessing to me. But I know persons can be, feel kind of vulnerable sometimes in a spot like that. And maybe tomorrow something else happens. But we can just stay with that commitment and just say, I'll just forgive you again. And if the next day that person does something against you again, you can just say, I'll just forgive him again. It's okay. And I tell you, when, you, when, when we surrender to God and, and lay those things down, our heart comes to rest. It's wonderful. And the Lord fills your heart with joy. And you can breathe again and you can live again because that burden rolls off. Anyway, I hope it's okay I shared this all with you. But, but God is just wanting to work in my heart, that's all. I can tell that. But the yoke... The yoke is not something negative. It's actually linking up with God and letting him work, pulling with him in the yoke. And then he also wants us to pull together. It's really a neat picture. Could you turn with me over to 2 Kings chapter 5?
Second Kings chapter five has um, the story about a well-known person. One of you children want to volunteer? Who he? Tell me who he is. One of you girls want to tell me who he is? This person. Did you find him in Second Kings chapter five? Not yet? Okay, that's all right. 2 Kings chapter 5 tells us the story about Naaman. And you might wonder, how does Naaman's experience enter into our subject? Um, well, you see, we have. there's another word, we call it surrender. Um, when, when, you, when we think of things like forgiveness and like that, I think of surrender because you really can't, we really can't forgive until we surrender. We can say, yeah, I'll forgive. No, it takes just a little more than that. It takes real surrender. If you want to really lay it down, if you want God to really cleanse it out of your heart, if you want to really come free and clear, if you want your heart to be light and full of joy, it takes surrender. In other words, and, and what would we surrender? Oh, our rights. Well, he did that to me. I've got the right to... No, no. We're laying that down. We're surrendering our rights. We're surrendering even being interested in revenge. We're surrendering even our thirst for revenge. You know, we say we forgive, and then later down the road, something bad happens back to that person, and somebody says, yes. Do you know what that means? That means we were carrying the thirst for revenge that whole time. Instead, when that bad thing happens, we'd want to go over to them and say, I'm so sorry. This is happening to you. And if we can feel that way, it lets us know that our heart was clear. Because when our heart is clear, we love again. That's what's so neat about real forgiveness. If, if, if we let God bring us to real forgiveness and our heart becomes clear, we can turn around and say, I love that person back in response and actually have a compassion and love for that person back. Then you know that God gave you the grace to let that person go. Really, truly, real forgiveness. Surrender. It takes surrender. It means I'll lay myself down for you. It takes surrender to pull in the yoke, too. Like, you're ready to go? Imagine yourself in a yoke with somebody. And you're like, 
You ready to move ahead? Yes. All right. That means I'll give up what I was planning to do, and I'll pull with you. It's it's the pulling in the yoke. There's that essence of surrender in there, meaning I'm willing to lay aside what I was going to do. I'll pull with you. Where you go, I will go with you. You want to pull forward? I'll pull forward with you. We're in the yoke together. Surrender. Wow. We're going to just read about Naaman a little bit because there's a few interesting points there I'd like to... But in Second Kings chapter 5, it says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is coming to thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant with thee, to, to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man does send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth, and went away, and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me, and stand, and call on the name of the Lord his God, and strike his hand over the place, and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Parfer rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? How much rather then when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean. Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying 
of the man of God, and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Naaman almost lost his life. Leprosy is not a joke. And I suppose the king in Israel thought, how on earth am I supposed to recover a leper of his leprosy? And so I understand why he thought that maybe the the king of Syria was just trying to pick a fight. There's There's so many things in this story that are so unique. One of them is the little slave girl. How even though she was kidnapped and taken to a a country far away, she testified of God when she was there. That's pretty special. So much so that the king of Syria listened to what she said and went to the work of sending Naaman to go over there. And Naaman came in faith, thinking that he could that he could find healing. And so here they came, and the king sent them over to Elisha, and they come over to Elisha's place. And and Elisha sends a message out that, that he should go dip in the Jordan. And so as Naaman hears this, he begins to reason rather than just saying, what do you think his next word should have been? When the message came and said, go to the Jordan, dip seven times, and you will be clean. What do you think his next word should have been? I will, or okay. We need to learn the word okay sometimes, don't we? Okay, and away he goes. But instead, he's upset. Oops, I used the wrong word. Upset isn't near strong enough. It says he went into a rage. And there's many different levels of anger. You know, you can feel upset and you can be get angry and you can get pretty mad. But, you know, when somebody says that someone's in a rage... That means he's mad enough to kill somebody else. And and what do you think could be happening here that could cause such a strong reaction? What was it? All it was is that Elisha didn't do it like Naaman thought. That's all. 
Did Elisha do something bad? No. Was Elisha mean? No. Was he unkind? No. I mean, Elisha gave him the answer for his life. Exactly what he was looking for. All I can see here is, Naaman just said, I thought he would come out and do it this way and do this and say this and do that and then I'd be healed. I just thought he would do that. And he didn't do it. In other words, what Naaman is saying is, Elisha didn't do it my way. And so I am in a huff and I am out of here. Have you ever heard of that before? Well, it's my way or the highway. Well, Naaman took the highway. And most people who have this idea should fill up their cars with gas because they're going to be on the highway most of their life. Because there's a lot of things in life that are not going to go my way. And if it's going to be, if we're going to live in this mode of my way or the highway, we're going to be on the highway most of our lives running from maybe ourselves. The servants thankfully tried hard to help their master. They tried to help Naaman come back to the thought of Oh, not my will, but thine be done. And I just wrote that expression. That's as a general expression. And so Naaman was kind of operating in this mode at first. Because it wasn't the way he thought, he was going to do something that would cost him his life. Think about that. He was planning to go back to his homeland and he was very likely going at top speed because when we're in a rage, they were probably whipping those horses and making them gallop as fast as they could go and the cart was bouncing over the bumps really bad. And they were headed back. And it's almost like he was planning to go back home to his house, and maybe in two months, die, get buried. I don't know how long his leprosy was going, you know, and how soon it would take his life. But he was planning, he was planning to take his, lose his life over a reaction to what someone else said. How often have people guided 
their lives and made their choices in life based on a reaction. Don't you think it would be sad to go through life instead of using the Bible as our guide to use our reactions as our guide in life? That's what Naaman was doing. He was doing something weird, wild, and crazy. He had the answer for his life. And he was rejecting it and running off some other direction on the basis that it wasn't the way he thought. And so, just going back to the thought of forgiveness, sometimes a person, if he's struggling with unforgiveness in his heart, if he's carrying a grudge inside, he may go to the, to, he may go way over here and go around to go, Or he may do something that costs him piles of money just to go over here. Or he may live this way the rest of his life because of a grudge he carries. Don't you think that's a sad way to go through life? It's like missing life, willing to miss life on the basis of nurturing a grudge. It's that expensive to have a grudge in in your heart. It costs that much. It's that costly because that grudge may destroy friendships. It may destroy our fellowship. It may destroy our marriage. It may destroy everything. And so we're willing to sacrifice our life just to carry a grudge? What did we want to do with that grudge anyway? How could it be so valuable? Why would we not forgive? Why would we not forgive? What is it that makes us want to hold on to that wrong? If we're not planning for revenge, what do we want with it? Maybe you can't relate to this. These are, these are struggles that I've battled with sometimes. I came to the conclusion that no, I do not want that unforgiveness. It's such a heavy burden. It just weighs you down. We can't run the race with God with burdens like that upon our shoulders. And when we f- forgive those burdens roll off and we can live again and we can breathe again and we get our life back. But here we have Naaman. He's saying, I'll do it my way. We got nice rivers back there. 
Why should I go dip in a muddy river? Maybe he even said, duh. He might have told his servants, duh. Why should I go bathe in a muddy river? Back home, we've got pretty rivers, clear water. I'll bathe in that. I'll do it my way. I'll do it the way that I want. And so he off to back. Tell me, if you'd have went back and dipped in the Parfar River back home, do you think you'd have came out clean? No. So it wasn't the water. And that's typical. That's very typical. When we take our own way and say, well, I'll do it my way. When we take that attitude, nearly always we are the loser. We are the loser. The person we hurt the most is ourselves. And it would have been the case in Naaman's case. But it's so neat how the servants approached their master. You know, they lived in a day when, especially rulers, if a ruler was angry and somebody stepped a little bit wrong, they just, they just clicked their heads off, right? That's the way they did back then. And like in the case of Haman, he felt a little miffed, you know, that this guy didn't bow down. He was ready to kill a whole nation of people just for that. And so here are these servants, and they're, they're looking at their master, and they're tearing down the road, bumping along over the bumps. It says that they came, they went over to their master, and they said, they didn't say, you dummy. They said, my master. And they said, if he had asked you to do something really important, wouldn't you have done it? Wouldn't you have done it? And I'm so thankful. Naaman listened to them. He goes, guess you're right. Turn them horses around. And so then the horses turned around, and they headed for the Jordan, and they headed fast. I can imagine they went just as fast as they were going the other way. And they got to the Jordan, and Naaman was down into the water. Muddy or not, Naaman saw the light. I think he realized right there that it wasn't dipping in water that was going to heal him. But it was when he was willing to come to surrender and submission, he was going to find life. And he came out with his flesh like a child's. You know how nice, you know when you have babies, and you feel their skin. It's so neat and so nice. It says that Naaman's skin was healed that good. That's how God does things. He does it 100%. And so Naaman received life. If he'd have took his own way, he'd have received death. But because he was willing to surrender, he got his life back. Yes, he got his life back. It's a beautiful picture.
When we sang our songs this morning, we could have said, well, Lauren, number one, we could sing number five. Aren't there more songs in the book? Why should we? We could have stood up and said, Lauren, why, why do we have to sing number one? And Lauren says, well, because I said so. Oh, so you, so you mean we have to sing number one just because you said so? See, yeah. So why do you think that? Because I was commissioned. I was commissioned to be the song leader and to choose the songs. And I chose number one. And yes, I do expect you to turn to number one. Well, it's really neat that we didn't have to go into that conversation. <laughs> you were all so submissive. When, when he said number one, I heard pages fluttering and fluttering, and we all got on the same page, proverbially and otherwise. <laughs> we were on the same page. Hey, that's pretty neat to get on the same page. We started to sing the song. You should have heard the harmony. You can't have harmony when there's no submission. That's why he stood up front here to direct and lead the song so that we could all get going at the same time and he could lead the song and we could, we could be together on it and there could be harmony. It's beautiful when there's harmony. I love it. Okay. In the areas of our lives, we think about submission and we think about surrender and and uh, and we think. I find it amazing because the Bible says that Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered, and I didn't think Jesus needed to learn anything. If anybody would have it together, he would. If anybody was perfect, he was. If anybody didn't need to learn anything, I thought it was him. But it said, but you know, Jesus had never walked the earth before as a man. So it was brand new to him. And so he learned what it's like to stub your toe or to be putting a chair together and hit your thumb with a hammer. Oh, that's how that is. That's how that feels. He'd never died on a cross before until he was here and died on the cross. So it's one thing to know about something. It's another thing to know it as in experiencing it. And so there's Jesus. He experiences it. Submission. Wow. And this was his testimony. He said, whatever God tells me to do, I do it. My meat is to do the will of my Father. So was Jesus' life kind of fruitless and all of that if he was supposed to be submissive all the time? That's actually what made his life fruitful. Can you take that home with you? That's the reason Jesus' life was fruitful. It's because he was a submissive person. He had surrendered his will to the Father. That's why we're here today. 
Not only was he blessed, thousands of people after him are blessed as well. That's how it works. But in our daily lives, sometimes we ask the question, well, if we look into an area of life, we think of leaders. And does God want there to be, yes, we always are to be in submission to him, but we look at our lives and we say, aren't there times we're supposed to be submissive too here? The answer is yes. That's true. Because God says that we should listen to our leaders and, and be submissive. And then, of course, the question arises, well, what about if a leader asks us to do something that we think we should not do? And, and it's a valid question, but let me ask you another one. When I think of leaders, I think maybe of church leaders, for instance, in our lives. How often has your church leader asked you to lie or cheat, kill or commit adultery or be unfair? How often have they pressured you to be unkind or unthoughtful or to take advantage of someone or sow discord or how often have they done that? I'm pretty sure it's not very often. So we ask, what about if their leadership isn't quite the way it should be? Okay? So I'd like to just take you back to the wilderness. When Moses struck the rock twice instead of speaking to it, he did wrong. Correct? He was a leader, and he did wrong. When he did that, did God tell all the Israelites to run away from him and reject him and not listen to him anymore? Did God do that? No, he did not. And I'm not sure how that all comes into our time and day, but God himself dealt with Moses for his wrong. He still wanted his people to be a submissive people. God knows how to deal with leaders. Even Nebuchadnezzar, who was a world leader and had himself up high, when he got out of his place, God put him out in the field. He had to go out and chow down on grass like the oxen. Does God know how to deal with leaders? Yes, he does. But he wants us to have submissive hearts. And you can take it one step further into a, into a family. You know, dads are supposed to lead out. Do dads always do it right? Do they always have the best ideas? This dad doesn't. How about you all? No, sometimes dads, as they lead out, sometimes they 
don't get it done very well. <laughs> and they tried, but didn't get it done very well. So now the stage is set. So now, wife, how do you move on from that? How do you operate on with that? I'm going to give you a little illustration to, to bear out my, my thought. Let's say that the morning comes and you look out the windows in your house and sure enough, there's freezing rain and you wanted to go to town today, but you look out and the road is glare ice. And you say, the stage is set. All right? Conditions aren't very favorable out there. The stage is set. There were two families. They wanted to go to town. All right, now what do we do? The conditions aren't very favorable. So the one family said, well, okay, I think we can still go to town. We'll move very cautiously and carefully. So they get in their car. They go out. They carefully ease down the road very cautiously. They get to town. They do what they're doing. They come back home in the evening, and they go, we're glad we're back. It was icy out there. But they're over by the fireplace, and they've got fire there, and they're having popcorn and reading a story. The other family looked out and saw the icy road, and they said, hmm, icy road, huh? Well, we're going to go... We're going to go do what we want anyway. He takes out on the road and heads down the road and says, I'm going to drive the way that I want. And at the first curve, he slid off and hit a tree and totaled his car. Plus, he broke his leg. And so now, in the course of everything happening, he ended up in the hospital. And so, in the second family, in the evening... The dad's in the hospital with a broken leg. His car is still back by the tree, wrapped around the tree. Now just compare that picture with the picture of the family that's sitting by the fireside eating popcorn and reading a story. Both of them had an icy road. Both of them had unfavorable conditions. But how they went from there made all the difference at the end of the day. I give that that comparison. For instance, let's just say a dad leads out, but it's not too great. He kind of he faltered and stumbled a little, and it wasn't too great. It's kind of like the icy road. The stage is set. Wife, what you do from here might determine whether your family is by the fireside eating popcorn tonight or of whether you're in the hospital with a broken leg. Depending upon your attitude can make all the difference at the end of the day. After all, God calls you to be a helper to your husband, which means where he falls short, you try to be the missing part so that everything turns out at the end, right? Yes, you can. And so it's okay if you want to step over beside your husband 
and sneak in underneath his arm and just say, I'll just be the other half of you and I'll be there to support you and help you. Just don't put your husband into shock or anything, but you might melt his heart. But you can do that. And in the end, at the end of the day, you might be by the fireside. Do you enjoy in your home when your children are submissive and surrendered to you? Is that kind of neat? You ask them to go do this, sure. They go ahead and do it. They come back. Everyone seems happy. The air feels peaceful. You don't really notice any chaos or anything. It's kind of nice, isn't it? You love that? It's wonderful. Would you rather that your children had the attitude of my way or the highway? Would you rather that your children would say, well, I'll gather the eggs when I'm ready. I'll do it my way. Would you rather have your children respond like that? If indeed you'd like for your children to be submissive, would you like to show them how? Your example to your children is probably the most powerful thing that you'll ever leave with them. Words are fine. Discipline is needed, sure, but your attitude, your example. And sometimes when I think about that, I say, who we are is what we leave behind. Some people leave money behind. Some people leave possessions behind. But I'd like to leave that with you today. Who we really are in the bottom of our heart That's the legacy that we leave behind. That's the footprint we leave behind when we are gone. After our life is over and we are gone, that's what we leave behind. So when your children grow up, can they say, well... I'm going to choose to be a submissive person because my dad was always a submissive person or my mom was always a submissive person. And we ask, so do we all need to be submissive? Don't the leaders get to, they can square up their shoulders and do what they want, right? They can say what's what and do what they want. Is that the way it is? Huh? No. Every person, God wants every person to have this kind of heart. If Jesus needed that kind of heart, I think we all do. We all do. Even the 
you, 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 the, the ministers in your church, they have to be submissive to each other. Otherwise, they can't pull together. Isn't that right? Yes. Do you think they have different ideas about things? Sure they do. Of course. And so they've got to be submissive. They've got to pull together. It's, as, it's almost as though, like if you have three ministers, it's almost like they have a yoke that has three loops on it. And they've all got to put their shoulders in there, and they've all got to pull together. And they have to listen to each other. They have to be willing to stop when they stop and go when they go. Don't they? Yes. If your ministers are pulling together, you ought to just get on your knees and thank God. And if you're a dad like me, we ought to just humble our hearts and pull with them. And if you're a wife, you can stand beside your husband and just be in the yoke with him. Life is too short to live it any other way. And so, yes, I say all of that to say we all need a submissive heart. We just do. What are the conditions that are surrounding when it's when when we are in the mode of my way or the highway what conditions tend to be in the air we tend to have chaos if we'd all chose our own song this morning and tried to sing it all at the same time it would have felt like chaos would have felt like running out of here. Wouldn't have warmed our hearts at all. Wouldn't have felt like worship at all. Discouragement. Aloneness. Division. Estrangement. Divorce. Oh. Do you know what divorce is? It's basically my way or the highway. And you know we can't always have my way, and so people take the highway. It's pretty much what it boils down to. Sure, there may be other contributing reasons, but still, it kind of boils down to divorce is basically my way or the highway thing. But a good marriage is basically not my will but thine be done. (laughs) In other words, two people are giving their hearts to each other, they're, they're, they're committing to pulling together and being one. And you might say, do I have to listen to my husband? No, you don't have to. If you give your heart, you can, you can pull together with him. And you can be one with him. And I repeat, if you step over and you're one with your husband, you have all of his strength. You like that, don't you? If you step away from your husband and go on your own, you're only on your own strength. But you stand with him and link together with him, you've got his strength too. 
disharmony, arrogance, all of those things that we hate like that, they're connected with this my way or the highway thing. The conditions that surround submission are rest. Jesus offered rest. He said if you get into the yoke, you can have rest. Your heart can rest. We love that. Rest, peace. Peace floods into your heart. Joy floods into your heart. Strength comes into your life. Security, protection, provision, friendship, fellowship, encouragement. All of those things surround. All of those things are the things that fill the atmosphere when we're a submissive people. That's so encouraging to me. When I think, when I think of our, our, our brotherhood at home, it warms my heart because I want to pull together. I love my brothers and sisters. They're a strength to me in my life. I don't know what in the world I would do if I didn't have them. They're a very important part of my life. It's like they're Jesus' messengers to me. And so together we pull forward. Together we're in the yoke. Yes, we're in the yoke. Well, if you want to, every day of our lives, every situation we meet, we can make that choice. We can make that choice of accepting Jesus' invitation to come to him and get into the yoke.